Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The price of natural gas is rocketing. Is volatility in the price of this crucial fuel here to stay? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane. And also on today's show, why an investigation at the World Bank has put the head of its sister institution, the IMF, in the spotlight. People who are critical of China's influence on international institutions are having a field day with these findings. They're saying it shows that these international institutions can't stand up to China. And after our adventures in DeFi land last week, who should control the future of money and payments? So at one level, it's a um, bright and promising future with fast and efficient digital payments. But one could also see this as a dystopian future. Energy prices are soaring as a shortage of natural gas begins to bite. Oil usually grabs all the headlines, but the real action these days is in natural gas. Wow, it's gone up so fast. Actually, the biggest increase we have really ever seen. A worldwide rise in gas prices has sent wholesale energy costs soaring. I'm not sure I have ever seen this kind of run in this short of a period for a commodity like nat gas. In many countries, including Britain and Spain, governments are rushing through emergency measures to protect consumers. Factories are being temporarily switched off from aluminium smelters in Mexico to fertiliser plants in Britain. Markets are frantic. The spike in prices is pretty dramatic. In Europe in the spring, natural gas cost around €20 or less per megawatt hour. Uh, Now it's over 70 and the costs of electricity have gone up in tandem with that. Henry Kerr is our economics editor. Britain is feeling it particularly acutely because it has been a front runner in moving away from coal energy and towards gas. It gets 40% of its energy from gas. Uh, and it's also a front runner when it comes to the use of renewables, which have underperformed. And even in America, which has abundant supplies of gas owing to shale gas, prices have still gone up from their low base. Why is this happening now? Why have we got this runaway rise? In one respect, it's a similar story to the other shortages that the global economy has seen in that uh, demand recovered really quickly, faster than people have expected. And as a result, you've run up against uh, bottlenecks. But there's also been other stuff going on. There's been a uh, long cold winter in Europe followed by a a hot summer and uh, renewable energy hasn't produced as much as it usually would. There hasn't been much wind. Uh, There's been a drought in Latin America. So that's contributing to the demand for gas. And people are looking ahead to the uh, winter to come. 
and pricing in a risk that if it's a bad winter, gas prices will go a lot higher. You mentioned that this problem was particularly acute in Britain and in the rest of Europe. Europe's also the home of greener policies than elsewhere. So is there a connection between the two playing into these uh, dynamics and somehow making problems worse? So I'd say it's two things. Europe doesn't have the shale gas industry that America has, so it has more expensive gas to begin with. And the only way that production in America can get into Europe and help ease the bottleneck is via the liquefied natural gas market, which is an imperfect way of distributing gas around the globe to begin with. But it is also related to those green policies, both in that Europe, and especially Britain, is quite dependent now on renewable energy, and because the European Emissions Trading Scheme, which has been biting more recently because the European Union has been really trying to get that works decarbonisation tool, that has inhibited the ability of industry to switch from gas to coal as the gas price goes up uh, because coal is very carbon intensive and you now have to go into the emissions trading scheme by a permit which costs more than it did. So that in turn supports gas prices as well. There's something else going on in the medium term, isn't there? And that in, in the attempt to decarbonise, many in the industry are betting on natural gas production as a, as a bridge or transition fuel out of dirty ones. So you think of oil super majors like ExxonMobil, Chevron and, and BP. Have those investments not yet paid off? Well, it's true that both governments and energy firms are betting on gas in the medium term as this bridge that links energy production to a carbon neutral world. But it's nonetheless the case that investment in any source of power that relies on carbon emissions is uh, less and less popular. So while uh, there has been this pivot away from oil and towards gas, it's still the case that you're getting much less investment in gas than you otherwise might. We're in this awkward halfway house between uh, carbon intensive power and carbon neutral power. And so what the effect of that is, is that this market is not operating as it might. Usually, if prices go up, you would expect that to encourage more investment uh, that would eventually ease the shortage. That's what we've had in the shipping shortages this year, in the microchip shortages. But when it comes to gas, what the high prices are really doing is not encouraging a lot more investment in gas, which everyone knows government's going to move away from eventually anyway, if they're serious about net zero. High prices are really just cutting off demand and rationing the supply that is available. How is this being felt or will it be felt by consumers? What are we seeing so far and what are we likely to see over the months ahead, do you think? Consumers feel the high price of energy quite quickly in their pockets, especially if they don't have fixed price deals. There's also the broader macroeconomic consequences of higher energy prices, which of course means higher inflation. Now, the world has a bit of an inflation problem at the moment. Central banks have been saying this is a temporary problem that will go away, but we keep seeming to run up against new sources of inflation. And this energy price surge is the latest one. And it's going to increase people's nerves that inflation could be more persistent. And then there are the political implications of higher energy prices. And this, in a way, is the long run challenge for governments as they decarbonize. Decarbonization involves making energy more expensive. But the politics of that are very, very difficult because it's such a high fraction of people's budgets. And so what you've already seen as a result of this spike in prices is government stepping in and attempt to help consumers through it. Spain is reducing tax on energy bills. Italy is subsidising energy. You can see that there's political upset in Britain. It doesn't take 
much of an energy price increase for politicians to feel pressure to intervene in these markets in ways that are not always consistent with government's decarbonisation goals. That sounds as if it's politically very hard to resist. But economically, it sounds like a bad thing to do. What economists would always say is that you can support households through tough times by supporting their incomes without necessarily blunting the effects of prices on their incentives. So you could increase income support for poor households without subsidising directly their energy bills, and they would still have an incentive to cut back. A situation in which you have unreliable supplies of energy in which high prices are in effect rationing what little energy you do have is not an ideal situation. What you want is to have abundant sources of clean energy and for carbon to be expensive, but that to encourage people to substitute towards the clean energy, not to substitute towards not using energy at all. Unfortunately, until we have uh, more secure clean energy supplies, we're going to be more in the situation where you essentially have prices rising and that cutting off demand for energy consumption per se, rather than switching it to a cleaner source. Henry Kerr, thank you very much. Thanks, Patrick. Stock markets were also rattled this week by the meltdown at Evergrande, a Chinese property developer with debts of around $300 billion. Essentially, the government has created almost an artificial cash crunch that is pushing these developers toward default and, in some cases, collapse. Our China business editor, Don Wineland, spoke this morning to our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, about whether the crisis at Evergrande could prove contagious. There was a developer on Monday. Its share price collapsed by about 90%. There are other companies, very large ones, that are borrowing money from their executives in order to pay the bills. So it's not necessarily a knock-on effect from Evergrande. Evergrande is creating some market panic, but really Evergrande is a symptom of this government campaign. To hear Don Wineland assess the fallout from the troubles at Evergrande, the world's most indebted property firm, listen to The Intelligence on your podcast app. And to read our analysis in full, subscribe to The Economist. There's a special offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. That link, as ever, is in the notes for this episode. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Next. The World Bank's Doing Business rankings are supposed to gauge how easy it is to start a company and operate in 190 countries. They're closely followed by political leaders. A good ranking can act as an invitation to the world's entrepreneurs to make their home in a country, for investors to bet on growth, and for local talent and resources to stay. But this year, the rankings have instead become a revealing measure of how the World Bank itself does business under political pressure. It's also created a dilemma for the bank's sister institution, the International Monetary Fund. 
Last year, some whistleblowers at the World Bank alleged that there had been improper manipulation of data in the World Bank's very popular doing business indicators. Simon Cox is our China economics editor. The bank appointed some lawyers to investigate and last week they revealed their findings in a remarkably frank and interesting report. And it showed that there had indeed been improper changes to the scores of four countries in particular China, and that these changes, at least in China's case, have been done at the behest of the leadership of the World Bank, which at the time uh, included the president, Jim Yong Kim, and his second-in-command, Kristalina Georgieva. Now, Kristalina Georgieva is currently the head of the IMF, which makes this all the more awkward. Now, immediately, the World Bank decided to stop publishing these doing business indicators, this doing business report, but there may be further implications now that the IMF itself has to consider. And Simon, can you tell us how the Ease of Doing Business report is, or, or rather was, supposed to work, and why it mattered so much? So the simplest description of the Doing Business report is that it's a measure of red tape that businesses face. Uh, it was inspired by a famous experiment by the Peruvian economist Hernando de Soto. Uh, he and his team actually tried to set up a textiles firm on the outskirts of Lima, and they did this purely to find out how long it would take to comply with all of the regulations on the books. So they went from ministry to ministry trying to get all the permits they needed, the electricity connection and so on. And I think they found it took them uh, something like 280 days. So uh, inspired by this example, the World Bank imagines a hypothetical business and it asks accountants, lawyers in 190 countries around the world, what do you think it would take for a business of this kind to get credit or to get registered? And then it assembles all of these answers into a set of scores. Now, this uh, report remarkably has captured the imagination of many very powerful people. The leaders in Russia, in India, in Indonesia and China have all set targets to try and improve in these rankings you know, it can be a good way of motivating and monitoring local officials to make sure they are streamlining regulations. And then if you do well, uh, you can boast about it at places like Davos, and perhaps, you know, you can attract more foreign investment as a result. Uh, and indeed, some of the data in the Doing Business report is used in the financial markets for things like governance standards, uh, credit ratings. And it also helps guide the World Bank itself in some of the projects it undertakes. So it's something that policymakers of all sorts take very, very seriously. What precisely has the investigation revealed about what's gone wrong? So it showed manipulation of the scores of four countries in two different reports. All of the focus, to be honest, has been on China. China's premier, uh, Li Keqiang, uh, in 2017, had started taking this report very seriously. He complained that China was lagging behind its peers in this league table. And as a result, local officials started streamlining regulations with some gusto. Unfortunately, a lot of these reforms took place too late to be captured in that year's ranking. And so there was the potential for embarrassment of China. It thought it was going to do well, and it turned out it wasn't yet. Now, this would have been awkward in any circumstances, but in that particular year... Uh, the World Bank was trying to raise capital from its members. And in order to get agreement from America and Japan, uh, it needed China to make some compromises. China needed to accept that it would remain uh, grossly underrepresented in the bank compared with its economic size. So it wanted to keep China happy. Now, when the president of the World Bank and his aides realised that they had the potential to embarrass China at this particularly awkward time, they asked the doing business team, is there anything that can be done about this? 
And so at the instigation of the president, the team started looking for potential changes to their methodology that might help salvage China's rank. For example, they considered including Hong Kong in an overall China rank, uh, but apparently that was seen as too politically sensitive. Now, at this point, they got Kristalina Georgieva involved. Uh, she took leadership of this issue, and eventually the research team decided they could make some tweaks to three indicators that would help to salvage China's rank. Ms. Georgieva has denied the allegations. According to a transcript of meeting with IMF staff on Friday, she said, I disagree with the implications for my role. Let me put it very simply to you, not true. So how much does her account differ from that of the investigators? According to a transcript of that meeting, she said that all she did was ask the research team to double and triple check the findings. Now, that does differ from what the lawyers found. Uh, the lawyers found that the team explored various uh, changes to the methodology, such as, for example, dropping one city from the data. Now, that's a methodological change, not a correction. And where does this leave her now? You know, what are her critics saying? What can be said in her defence? Her critics, in particular, people who are critical of China's influence on international institutions, are having a field day with these findings. They're saying it shows that these international institutions can't stand up to China. Her defenders point out that she wasn't in charge at the World Bank at the time, so she was basically acting on the wishes of the president. Uh, they point out that the research team told her that there was a reasonable question about China's score on some of these matters, and she probably would have accepted that. Uh, they also point out that some of the institutional checks and balances that are supposed to be in place at the World Bank to prevent this kind of pressure were unfortunately missing. What used to happen is that you would have a chief economist from the outside, uh, an academic with an academic reputation to defend, who would be standing up for the research department. Uh, unfortunately, the person playing that role at the time, uh, Paul Romer, had already been sidelined for other reasons, so he wasn't even aware that this was going on. I think the defence would also point out that she was doing this for defensible reasons. Uh, she was trying to defend multilateralism in a difficult period when it was very much under fire. How much damage has the affair done, first of all, to the bank as the publisher of the Doing Business report, but second, through the connection with Ms. Georgieva to the IMF? It shows that the World Bank wasn't able to handle this governance challenge, this potential for a conflict of interest. The World Bank should be able to insulate its research team from the more diplomatic pressures that institutions like that face. The bank has obviously investigated. It's been extremely open, remarkably open about this affair, and it's discontinued these particular indicators, which were unusually controversial and attracted unusual amounts of political pressure. So probably uh, the bank will get through this okay. The fund is, is in a more difficult position because the fund is often called upon to make dispassionate technical judgments in matters of some geopolitical controversy, and in particular matters in which America and China might be at loggerheads. So in the past, it has been called upon to act as kind of a referee in some of the currency disputes America and China used to have. In the future, you can imagine countries that are borrowed very heavily from China, perhaps needing to reschedule their debts, perhaps needing the IMF to get involved in that. Those sorts of negotiations are always controversial, and you can imagine critics of the IMF and critics of China's role in the IMF using these findings in future cases like that. Simon Cox, thank you very much. Thank you. And finally, in last week's Money Talks, Ratchner and Alice went on an adventure into the future of finance. 
three models are vying to shape that future. There's the private, centralised approach. Big tech firms like Facebook and Amazon are following in the footsteps of Chinese giants like Tencent and Alibaba to create new digital payments networks that work with their own stablecoins and others. Governments are working on their own plans for public centralised systems using central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs. And third, some are pushing for a completely decentralised route with payments and other financial services made and verified through purpose-built blockchains and no single entity, public or private, in charge. All three of these models already exist to some degree, but they're all developing fast. The question now is how they can coexist. Where are they most in competition or even in conflict? And who will benefit? In terms of the long arc of history, this is quite fascinating because we're coming back from a time when private currencies dominated to when fiat currencies issued by central banks dominated to a new era of uh, currency competition. Ishwar Prasad is Professor of Economics at Cornell University and the author of The Future of Money. He spoke to our finance correspondent, Mathieu Favas, for Money Talks. I can certainly see that both centralised and decentralised uh, private currencies are going to play an important role as um, means of exchange, as mediums of payment. But the key question in my mind is really whether they are going to be built on a bedrock of trust that is sufficient to allow them to play a role as stores of value. My inclination is to believe not. I think ultimately the trust in governments or central banks is still going to determine currencies that can act as stores of value. So I suspect that these three modes of currency are going to coexist and they're going to lead to a bifurcation of the roles of money um, as a store of value, as a medium of exchange and as a unit of account. So if we accept that stablecoins will exist regulated in some ways, CBDCs will as well, and Bitcoin and, and decentralized private currencies won't, won't go away either, probably. Um, we have the three different systems or pathways or, or world that, that coexist. What sort of bridges do you think should exist between them or need to exist between them? The key challenge facing designers of CBDCs is how to make sure that they provide an alternative payment system without squelching private sector innovation. So if you think about what um, both China and Sweden, um, which have already rolled out trials and other central banks are contemplating, it is what is called a dual layer architecture where essentially the central banks are not going to be the ones that distribute the CBDCs in the form of digital tokens. So if you take um, the case of China, for instance, where Alipay and WeChat Pay essentially dominate the digital payment systems, the ECNY, the digital version of the yuan, would essentially be interoperable across these payment systems, which is the one advantage it would have relative to the existing payment systems. So I think there are ways that the central bank can use CBDCs to broaden financial inclusion by providing a very low-cost digital payment system that does not require a debit card or a credit card or a bank account. It could also promote financial stability by providing a backstop to private sector digital payment systems. But in addition, you could have a CBDC also becoming a pathway to innovation by private payment providers. So I think there is not necessarily a conflict among these three modes of payment. 
And, and as with any systemic change or innovation, this is likely to benefit a certain type of players, right, within the system. Who do you think is likely to be most powerful within this new configuration that we've been discussing? What type of actors, what type of organizations? Now, the promise of these new financial innovations is that of democratizing finance on the consumer side. You could have people who are poor having access to uh, digital payment systems and a portal to banking products and services. But as with many new innovations and technologies, there is also the risk that you could end up worsening existing problems. We've seen examples in China, as I alluded to, there are two payments providers that have become dominant in China, essentially pushing out all the others. And at the same time, on the consumer side, we still live in a world where there is very unequal digital access, where there are huge disparities in financial literacy. So I think there is still going to be a very important role for government policy in making sure that the playing field is really level. I guess one difficulty for them is that they, they will be a player in this game, right? If they are indeed designing CBDCs and, and encouraging the, the adoption, uh, how can we be sure that uh, CBDCs will be exciting enough, easy to use enough to compete with private alternatives, which might be sexier, you know, because developed more quickly or by players which are more used to designing easy to use products? That's true. If you think about um, the example of China, again, it's not obvious what the uh, use case is for a Chinese CBDC. In other countries where digital payments are not quite as prevalent, including, of course, the US, where a significant proportion of the population, about 5% or so, is still uh, unbanked or underbanked, uh, one could argue that a CBDC might play a useful role. But I think the design of a CBDC does confer certain advantages, even if um, uh, centralized and decentralized cryptocurrencies uh, do gain a lot of prominence by then. It strikes me that we'll end up with a pretty fragmented universe financial system. And that probably creates risks as well, right? That is going to be a significant concern. Um, if you think about decentralized finance, um, proponents argue that in fact one can build in safeguards. After all, much of the code is open source, so problems can be rectified immediately. But I think this sort of financial engineering does create uh, certain risks that we may not even be aware of at this stage. Essentially, the attack surface for malicious actors grows, and there might be points of vulnerability that are very difficult to identify. After all that, do you think that uh, we will come at some point to regret cash, or do you think it should be consigned to museums? Cash has many wonderful features. It really guarantees anonymity. Uh, it can come through in a pinch when telecommunication system uh, breakdown, when uh, electricity is not available. And cash is a wonderful thing just because, I mean, we are human beings who care about the tangible element of things. But I think the reality is that the convenience of uh, digital payments, both for consumers and businesses, plus the many advantages it has for governments and central banks is going to make cash a relic fairly soon. So at one level, it's a um, bright and promising future with fast and efficient digital payments. But one could also see this as a dystopian future where essentially every payment that we make is visible either to a central bank or government or uh, to a private payment provider. So I'm looking forward to the coming world with uh, great anticipation, but also a little bit of concern. So in waiting for this, this world to, to come through, uh, what you say suggests that we, uh, at least I should, should probably hold on to a few uh, banknotes and coins. 
they might be very valuable one day. Fantastic. Uh, Ishwa Prasad, thank you very much for being on the podcast. It's been my pleasure, Matthew. Thank you. Our thanks to Ishwa Prasad and Matthew Favas. And if you haven't heard it yet, do go back and listen to last week's episode, Alice in DeFi Land. You'll find a progress report on CBDCs. You'll hear an interview with the head of Facebook Financial, which plans to launch its new digital wallet later this year. And you can take a trip into the decentralised universe. Thanks so much for listening. While you're with us, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also write to us at podcasts at economist.com. The producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan. Nico Rofast is our sound engineer. The editor is Sandra Schmuley. I'm Patrick Lane, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.